Well, good morning, prodigal. How are we doing? Good. Right on. So it was this last May, I got a phone call from my grandmother. And I always answer when my grandma calls because she doesn't call all that often. And answer the phone and she says, uh, your dad is in the hospital and he's, he's dying. Now, this was a weird phone call f- for a couple of reasons. One, I don't know my dad. Uh, I, I, uh, maybe the last time I saw him, I was seven or eight years old. I'm 42. And so I said to my grandma, well, I'm, I'm not sure what you want me to do with that. Um, or if I should do anything with that. And she says, no, you don't have to do anything uh, or feel anything, or, but I need you to do something for me. My grandmother's 92, 93, and she said to me, I need you to go to the hospital for me and check on him. Um, I did not want to do that. I had no interest in seeing my dad, um, but I'd never told grandma no one time in 42 years, so I felt like I shouldn't start now. Um, so I said, okay, Grandma, I'll go to the hospital. So I get there. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a weird situation where you're just kind of terrified, like, going up the elevator, like, not knowing what to expect. And so I get to the room. There he is. Doctor tells me, yes, he is dying. He won't be leaving this bed. Um, and he's not, uh, he's, he's, uh, not really um, awake all that often. Um, so you can go in and, and see him. So I went in, and he wasn't awake. He was just lying in the bed. And and uh, there I was, just, just inches from my dad's face, sitting in a chair uh, bedside and, and wondering what to feel and how I was supposed to feel and, and what, what was I supposed to do. Um, and then I thought, well, what if he wakes up? Like, and how long, like, how long is long enough to sit here, right? Like, I was asking all of those kinds of questions. And, and I thought, well, what if he does wake up? If he does wake up, I'm going to have to say something. Will he even, like, recognize me? And if he does, what should I say? And, and, and what's true is I've gone through uh, some stuff so, and, and kind of worked through sort of my anger and forgiveness uh, when somebody who's supposed to uh, love you and care for you and be there for you isn't. Um, and so I kind of worked through that. That wasn't an issue for me anymore. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll offer that to him. If he wakes up, that's what I'll say. I'll say, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. I hope you share in that disappointment. Um, but, like, I, you're forgiven, and, and, you know, I hope that that means something to you. Um, and he did. He woke up. And so I freaked out again a little bit, and, but then I had that conversation with, with my dad. And, and he could kind of respond a little bit. He de- I definitely got the sense he knew what I was talking about, and we, we kind of had a, a weird kind of semi-conscious moment. Um, and then he went right back to sleep. Uh, and then something dawned on me as I was just sitting there staring at him that, that there had been something driving me for 42 years, and it was the fear of becoming him. That there I was, sitting bedside next to a man I didn't know, uh, who had more than one child who does not know him. Uh, he's, he's, he's dying alone. I'm there as a favor to my grandmother. Uh, he's not significant in this life at all. He's added value to nobody's life. And I just thought, and for 42 years, I've been driven to not be that. That I was literally in that moment staring at my worst fear, my fear of being him. That I was in that moment sort of scared to death. 
And I don't know if you are with me on this, but I, I feel like fear can be this thing that so invades our whole life that we wouldn't even know what a life without fear would feel like. That, that so much of how we act, what we say, and the decisions we make are, are rooted in, in fear. Um, and and there's, they're driven by this, this underlying fear. They're motivated by this fear that we just haven't dealt with in our life yet. And there always seems something to be afraid of. If it's, if it's something in us, if it's something around us, if it's, if, it's, if it's close or far away, if it's visible or invisible, if it's within me, if it's within you, or perhaps even within God, there's always something to fear. That fear seems to be this omnipresent power in our lives that has the capacity to penetrate our interior space and control us if we're aware of it or not. And this is an incredibly dangerous space to live in because an untamed fear can become this cruel tyrant in our lives that takes possession of us and forces us to live as hostages in a house of fear. And when we move in and are shackled to the house of fear, we're really handed two perspectives on life. Um, one is a view of that the world is defined by alienation, and the other is a world defined by scarcity. And when we see the world through the lens of scarcity, it puts us on our heels. We begin to adopt a defensive posture for how we do life. Um, and we never have enough. We never have enough when we see the lens through scarcity. And we're always trying to get more, whatever more looks like for you, right? We, we wake up in the morning, we say, I didn't get e enough sleep. Or, or we put our heads down on the pillow at night and we say, um, I, I didn't get enough done today. And, and we think the answer to that is more. We think that we need more, right? Because we're, when we have this defensive posture, it's like the rest of the pack is up front. We're in the back, we're exhausted and terrified because we're exerting all of our energy not really trying to gain ground, just keep up because we have to keep the pack in sight because if we lose sight, we, we won't know what to do and we're terrified of that. And again, we think the answer's more. We just need more of something, right? But, we need, you know, but the answer's not more. The answer's not abundance. The answer to defeating a view of scarcity in this life is, is, is enough. It's enough. That you could actually look in the mirror and you could say, I am enough. You could look at your kids, and you could say, my kids are enough. You could look at your spouse, and you could say, my spouse is enough. You could look at your job, and you could say about your job, my job is enough. That you could evaluate the season you find yourself in life right now and say, this is enough. Where I'm at is enough. In terms of this perspective we're handed in the house of fear of alienation, this fear of rejection, this fear of, this fear of disconnection, this fear that somehow you won't want to be my friend. Right? You know what we do with that? We tend to not open up more. We actually tend to close in. 
that we'll tend to hide. We're not vulnerable when we fear alienation or isolation or disconnection. We close in. We're less vulnerable. We hide parts of ourselves that we predetermine. You haven't. We do it ourselves. We predetermine could break relationship. It would be something in us we think you won't like. And so we hide it, we hide it, we hide it. And do you know what happens when we do that? We actually start adopting the patterns that will eventually create disconnection, rejection, and isolation in our lives. That we become our own self-fulfilling prophecy. This is what happens. I, I love what um, uh, author and researcher Brene Brown, perhaps you've heard of her, um, she says this about fear. She says, we're all afraid. We just have to get to the point where we understand it doesn't mean that we can't also be brave. Fear is universal. What is less common is courage and the ability to step into it and to live bravely. You know, perhaps this is just a side note, but I, I think in a conversation about fear, we need to just at least be aware that how the world operates is usually through fear. That those with power and influence in the world will leverage fear to control you, to manipulate you. To keep you afraid is to keep you behaving the way that those with fear, with power and influence in your life want you to behave. That this has been the tool of those with power and influence throughout history. Because if they can keep you afraid, they can keep you doing what they want you to do. Be it a father, a mother, a boss, a teacher, a doctor, a politician, a pastor, a church. The agenda of the world so often is power and fear. If you don't believe me, open up the news feed on your phone and you will see that fear and power drive everything. And here's the deal, it shouldn't. We shouldn't be drowning in our questions of, well, what if I don't get the job? And what if I get cancer? And what if I don't get married? Or what if we don't get the house? Right? We, we shouldn't be imprisoned to those kinds of questions. Because do you know what sits under those kinds of questions? More fearful questions. Because fear will only ever give birth to more fear. And if you feed your fear, it only gets hungrier. It will never be fed enough. And so you'll be driven to feed your fear more and more and more and more. And so what's, what's the answer to this? What's the answer to this invading force in our lives that has a tendency to keep us hostage in the house that it's built? What's the, what's, what do we do when we live in a world driven by power and fear? What do we do when the leaders above us leverage and manipulate our fears to keep us controlled? How do we respond to that kind of crazy world? Is there a force floating around in the universe more powerful than your fear? I say yes. I say yes. And here it is. Here it is. The force that's floating around the universe that is more powerful than whatever it is that you're terrified of is love. It's love. Now, as a, as, a, as a Jesus person, I think love's been given a name. Jesus. 
Now, you may be here and you're not a Jesus person, and that's okay, that's fine, but I don't want you to, to check out because I, I think what I want you to hear today is that even if you're not a Jesus person um, and you're not even really interested yet in being a Jesus person, I want you to know that may perhaps the bill of goods you've been sold is that being a Jesus person is being handed a list of do's and don'ts. That's not at all related to what it means to follow Jesus or to be Christian. To be Christian is not do's and don'ts. To be Christian is to say yes to an invitation that leads you out of the house of fear and into a house of love that Jesus built. That that is what sits at the heart of what it means to be Christian or to follow Jesus. In fact, one of Jesus' very best friends, his name was John. And uh, John was nearing the end of his life, and he decided to write a letter to uh, the people in his faith community, in his church. He was a pastor. And John was writing this letter, and he was, he was sort of um, remembering his friend Jesus. He was remembering Jesus' impact on his life and Jesus' impact on, on, uh, on, on all of humanity's trajectory. And, and here's, here's what he wrote to the people in his church. Speaking of his friend Jesus, there is no fear in love, but perfect fear, also known as Jesus, drives out fear. That, that the perfect love, which is the essence of Jesus, John would later go on and say that God is love, right? That Christians believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God's show and tell. And so John says, when, I'm ta- when he was talking about his buddy, he says, you want to know who Jesus is? He's love. He's perfect love. And this love somehow has the capacity to drive out your fear. But we are somewhat, I think, unfamiliar with perfect love because we don't have a lot of great models for perfect love. Because perfect love is defined by um, being unconditional, Yeah. And we don't, we don't have a ton of experience with unconditional, and we actually don't even understand that because we think love is um, conditional, that there's some things we got to do or not do to be loved. That's the love that pretty much we've experienced throughout our lives in almost every relationship that we've had. So to talk of perfect love, to talk of uh, an unconditional love, to talk of a love that says it's not about what you do or haven't done or are thinking about doing or not doing, you're just loved because you're you. That is really a separate kind of conversation for us. We don't know what to do with that always. But John, speaking of his friend, said, listen, listen, there is, a, there is a love that exists out there that you can understand, that you can step into, that you can actually participate with. And if you do, this love has the capacity to fill the space that love is, that fear is taking up to control you. Now, it doesn't mean that your fear won't exist. Your fear is real. It's there. It's present. In fact, to have fear is to have normal brain function. If you do not have fear, you can say that you are brain damaged. Because fear is just part of what it means to have a functioning brain. John's not saying you'll be fearless. He's saying fear won't have a controlling power in your life. That the perfect love The essence of Jesus has this capacity to fill up the space fear's occupying, to break you free from the house of fear, to open you up to new possibilities. You know, I've heard it said that, that fear is is the opposite of faith, but that's not true. So stop thinking that if someone told you that along the way. Fear is faith in the wrong thing. 
Fear is faith in what ifs. And what if the cancer does come back? What if I get cancer? What if I marry a jerk? For some of you, it's too late. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, right? Fear is, 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 it's fear in the worst case scenario, right? I, I love how uh, there's a late Christian philosopher, his name's Dallas Willard. Here's how he defined fear. He says, he says, fear is the anticipation of evil. That's not a good place to live. Can we agree? Where you wake up every morning and you're anticipating bad things happening. Not a good space to, to occupy. And, and, and here's why. It's got all sorts of, of collateral damage in your life because to say bad will happen is to say that bad beats good, that evil is stronger than good. And so you look out in the world and you see all the bad. I am still grieving. I mean, I'm just grieving this morning to hear of, of the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. Right? I'm grieving of, of bombs being mailed out. I'm, I'm grieving about hate crime. I'm not, there's evil everywhere. It's just there. It's easy to look out and say, evil wins. Read the news. Evil wins. Right? When that becomes our posture, good, and that evil's stronger than good, why in the world would we believe in a good God or a perfect love that can somehow defeat or conquer fear in our lives, that could break us free from the house of fear? Why would we believe in that? So I love Willard's definition that fear is actually this place where we get to this place in our life where we anticipate evil winning and we sit back and sort of just let the monster come and devour us. In that sort of life posture, do you know what we do? We actually, now all of a sudden, safety, control, protection become our primary goals in life. I, I, this, and this is what uh, a pastor out of Texas, his name is Max Lucado, says about that. He says, listen, when fear shapes your life, safety becomes our God. When safety becomes our God, we worship the risk-free life. And when you worship the risk-free life, when safety becomes your God. Do you know what really happens? You are closing the door on you ever fulfilling the potential that you have in this life. You will never be the best version of yourself if safety is your God. Because for you to step into and live out of the best version of yourself, it will require risk. It will require having love conquer fear and take up the controlling space fear has in your life. If you don't, if you choose not to do that, if fear shapes your life, you will never be what you were created to be. And you will never be able to live out of the best version of you. It just won't happen. Jesus, he gave lots of sermons, but the most famous, we named the Sermon on the Mount because he gave it uh, on top of a mountain. And right in the, right in the middle, uh, or actually not the middle, pretty much the end of that sermon, Jesus sort of looks out at the crowd and here's what he said. He said, listen, therefore I tell you, stop being worried or anxious, perpetually uneasy or distracted about your life. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body as to what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, I don't think Jesus is coming after us or coming down on us for, for just our everyday sort of concerns we have for the stuff that needs to get done in our life. That's not the issue here. There is stuff we got to do and we're concerned about it. That's fine. I think what Jesus is, is saying here, though, is um, 
when you remove me from your everyday activities, the result in your life will be fear. When you remove me from the calculation of your day, you will be worried and anxious and perpetually uneasy and distracted about your life. You will be afraid. Right? So when she's saying, listen, when you add up the day's challenges, if you don't work me into that equation, you will be afraid. So let's just not do that. Let's just not allow that to happen. There's a, uh, there's a psychologist. His name's Dr. Carl Albrecht. And uh, he, he came up with what's called the feararchy. Well, he named it the feararchy. It's like the hierarchy of fear. And he says, listen, there are essentially four big fears that sort of birth all our other fears. And that the key to sort of understanding our fear is to sort of getting to the root of them. And he says, the root of all your fears comes from these four fears. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to help us understand our fear so we can actually begin to become objective about our fear and deal with it in an honest way. Um, and so I just real quick, I kind of want to work our way up the feararchy and walk through these things so that we can begin to understand fear. Does that sound like okay, just quickly? Um, so right at the bottom is the fear of extinction, which like that's the fear of you becoming extinct, right? Like it's the fear of death because nobody likes Dying. If you're afraid of heights, you're afraid of heights because if you fall, you'll die, right? You're afraid of airplanes because if planes crash, what happens? You'll die. So Carl Albrecht says, listen, you're not actually afraid of planes, you're afraid of dying. You're not afraid of heights, you're afraid of death, right? This is where those fears get birthed. As we move up the feararchy, we get to autonomy loss. Listen, we really want to be self-determined, self-directed individuals. We desire that. We want to have a say in how our life goes. And when that doesn't, when we're afraid of that not happening, it's why we fear losing our job. Losing our job means less money. Less money means less options. And we don't get as big a say in our lives as we used to. It's why some of us hoard things, right? Because hoard, hoarding is all about what if I need it, right? So if I, if I, get to, if I give it away or if I sell it or throw it away or whatever it is. If that happens, I fear that there will be a day when I'll need it. And if I don't have it, I won't have control over my life or as much control as I thought I had when I had it. So I'm just going to keep everything. Or maybe you know people who fear not driving, right? Hey, let's all go to dinner. I'll pick you up. Nah, I'll meet you there, right? Why? Because they can't handle not controlling when they leave the restaurant, if that's you, I'm sure John knows therapists, right? That is like a serious problem, right, that you need to work through, right? That you've gotten to the place where I can't even control when I leave. That's like a control problem, yeah? That's a fear, right? Moving up, though, autonomy loss is separation. This, this, is, this is starting to get serious. This is like the fear of divorce, right? This is the fear of um, being alone, we're never getting married. This is the fear of losing someone we love, right? What if she dies? What if he dies? Right? I also think rooted in this is what, what you know, it's been coined, um, the phrase helicopter parent comes from, right? Like where we just like, you know, monkey bars are gone and helmets are on and GPS chips are implanted, right? Why do we do that? Well, I think some of it's just taking precautions, but some of it, helicopter is I'm so terrified something will happen I have to control every environment my child's ever in right 
And it creates an enormous amount of stress and panic in our lives, and it controls us in many ways. We move up to the top of the feararchy, ego death. Ego death. This is, well, this actually speaks into my big fear. I'm staring at my dad, right? It's the, it's the fear of being insignificant. Or it could be the fear of failure. It could be the fear of humiliation, right? The, the fear of public speaking. If you're familiar at all with some of Seinfeld's uh, material, right? He kind of once made a big deal about how research suggests that there's really two big fears that everybody shares. That it's the fear of death and the fear of public speaking, right? And that, that research also suggests that it's the fear of public speaking is greater than the fear of death. Seinfeld's punchline is that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than speaking at the funeral, right? And, and it's kind of clever, but it speaks right into the feararchy. Yes, we fear death, but actually we fear being humiliated publicly more. The fear of shame or embarrassment, right? That this is actually worse than death. Now, why should we care about the feararchy? Why spend any amount of time on the feararchy? Well, I'll tell you. Because we have to understand our fear. If you're going to deal with fear, you have to understand it. And do you know what fear is trying to do to you? I've been hinting at it all morning, control you. Maybe you could use the image of being blackmailed. Fear is trying to blackmail you. And what happens when you're being blackmailed? You begin to make decisions um, that are out of sync with who you are. And if you do that long enough, eventually, guess what happens? Um, you're not you anymore. That fear will actually rob you of your identity because you've gotten so comfortable living with the fear that, that that's just who you are now. You're fearful. You wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror. You don't even know that person anymore. That person is fearful and isolated and anxious and paralyzed. That that's you because you've been blackmailed for so long by fear. You've lost your identity. It's why you can't be fearful and live into your potential. Because you're not even you anymore. The decisions you make no longer have anything to do with the depth of your true identity. It has to do with what you're afraid of, and that's not you. But understanding our fear is just, just part one. I think of a one-two punch that really is what it takes to sort of defeat or conquer the fear in our lives. So yes, we have to understand our fear because yes, we have to be objective. Yes, we have to be honest. Yes, we have to get to the place where we can talk about it and understand it and all of those things, of course. There's work we gotta do. But it's understanding our fear plus understanding God's love, the perfect love, the essence of Jesus that drives out fear. It's, the, it's that one-two punch that will provide us freedom from our fears. Not elimination from our fears. They're real, they're there, and that means your brain's working. But it's busting us out of slavery in the house of fear and moving us into the house of love. Right? So it's understanding fear, but it's also understanding God's love. And John, Jesus' really good friend, wasn't the only one that talked about it or experienced it. You know, as the church was just getting going a couple thousand years ago, yes, John wrote about it a lot. But there was another guy that wrote about it. His name was Paul. And what's really interesting about this guy, Paul, is that he wasn't like an early adopter of the Jesus movement. In fact, he was, an, he was an early adopter of taking down the Jesus movement. This guy, Paul, was actually a leader within Judaism, the Jewish religion. And he was most passionate about ex like, getting rid of the Christian faith. They want, he wanted to eliminate it from the face of the planet. And so he leveraged his influence, he leveraged his power 
to arrest, beat, or even kill, if he felt necessary, those that were a part of the Jesus movement. Paul was not an early Jesus adopter. He was an early Jesus exterminator. Today we would call Paul a terrorist. But one day with arrest warrants in hand on his way to go get some more Christians, he, is, he comes face to face with the perfect love of Jesus. And it changes his life radically, quickly, suddenly. And he moves from Judaism to being not just a part of the Jesus movement, but a leader within the Jesus movement. Uh, and he, he plants churches, his whole thing, he just wants to start churches all over the place. So he goes and he starts churches, and he starts churches, and his whole pitch, the whole bottom line is, you're loved by a perfect kind of love that will change your life. That's his sales pitch. And he changes the world. And, and not only does he speak live, he writes letters. When he's not with people, he writes them letters. And in fact, I don't know if you know this, but like the Christian Bible, we call it the New Testament. You may not know this, but it's, um, it's mostly intercepted ancient mail. And most of it was written by Paul. Paul went from terrorist to Bible author. And in many of his letters, he really emphasizes the love of Jesus as this having the capacity to conquer our fear. In fact, here's what he wrote in a letter to some friends that lived in the city of Rome. Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus? That was the question. He's just, you know, kind of weird mid-letter. Hey, who, what could possibly separate us from the perfect love that is Jesus? What could do that? And then he like gives us a list. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just what was probably on the top of his head, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger. Or so, I mean, is any of this stuff, can that possibly separate us? His response, no, nope. no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, he calls us, through him who loves us. That we can actually conquer our fears. I mean, so here's the question for you. I mean, here it is. What's keeping you up at night? I mean, do some of you wake up in the middle of the night like anxious sweats? Or, or what is that thing in your future that you're fixated on? What is that thing that's controlling you? What is that thing that's keeping you locked in the house of fear? Listen, I think that this, this love of Jesus, the one who loves us, that this love that can allow us to be more than conquerors of our fear, not eliminators, conquerors. Remember, it's there. You're going to be afraid. That's human. It's part of your human con the human condition and your human experience. But it's not to be controlling, right? So what do we do? Or what is Here, here's what I think the, the love of Jesus says about that Albrecht's, the fear archy, right? For those of you at the very top, like me, the ego death, you fear that. Fear of failure, fear of humiliation, fear of, fear of uh, failure. Here, here's, here's, what I think, here's what I think the love of Jesus says to you. You're loved. I think it says you're loved. I think it says uh, you're loved no matter what. You're valued. You don't have to do anything. You're valued and loved and you matter right where you are. I think that's for those of us that struggle with ego death, I think that's what the love of Jesus says. For those of you that fear separation, you, f you fear being divorced. I think Jesus says, I'll never file for divorce. You fear losing someone. I think Jesus' love says, even if you've lost the one you loved, you'll never lose the one that loves you most. 
For those of you that fear autonomy loss, that you like control, you, you won't even drive to restaurants um, with other people, right? You want to control yourself, determine yourself. You know what I think the love of Jesus says to those of you struggling with that fear? Um, you are never in control anyway. Your control's a myth. But the love of Jesus says, but you can trust me. You can trust me. And what about the fear of extinction? The fear of death? Well, I think the love of Jesus says, okay, for you all, that fear's coming true. We all know the stats. One out of every one person dies. You're going to die. But still the love of Jesus speaks into that and says, but don't worry, I've defeated death. That my love is actually so big, it's conquered death. That it's taken the sting out of death. Right? That, I mean, again, if you're new to Christianity, the whole deal is that Jesus was dead, and then three days later, he wasn't dead anymore. We call it the resurrection. And the promise of being a Jesus person is that what God did for Jesus, that kind of love, dead to life, that he's going to do for you. And that's what actually takes the sting out of death for us, is that yes, we will die, but it is not a permanent state in our lives. That life, there is life beyond death. It's been conquered. It doesn't bite anymore. And, and so, you know, Paul actually sort of summarized it. He's like, I, guys, here, here's what I'm thinking about all of this love. This perfect love is just overwhelming me. But here's, here's Paul's response to it all. What then shall we say in response to these things? And maybe you've heard this phrase. If God's for us, who could possibly be against us? Certainly not our fear. In fact, God's love gives fear something to fear. Right? Listen, I don't want to oversell this morning. I don't think this talk is going to change your life. But I do hope it gets you thinking about the possibility of you no longer being controlled by your fear. That there is a force floating around in the universe that is stronger than and capable of defeating your fear and breaking you out of the enslavement that you've been trapped in in the house of fear and allows you to move into a new kind of house, a house of love um, built by Jesus. That's all I hope. I could continue to let the fear of me being my dad uh, control me, but then the two little girls I have, I think I would miss them. So here's the thing. I think, when, I think when we're hostages in the house of fear, um, we won't make the decisions we need to make. You'll never leave the toxic relationship. You'll never propose. You'll never enroll in school. You'll never start the business. I mean, you'll never sign up to volunteer for prodigal because you just don't think you're, you know, worthy or good enough or whatever. I mean, fear keeps us trapped. We're hostage. We'll never do what it's going to take for us to actually be who we are. I mean, here's it. Listen, fear changes nothing. Nothing. Love changes everything. It changes nothing. It'll just move you. Every day you're afraid is one day farther away from who you actually are. But love provides a 180 back towards who you are and what you're capable of accomplishing in this world in the name of a love that has the capacity to overpower the fear in your life. Fear changes nothing.
Love changes everything. Amen? Amen. All right.